one of the things I'm sure you're recognizing is uh, this path of practice that we've all undertaken is tricky. And there are a lot of ways to get off track, ways to get confused, ways to believe what our mind is saying, right? And uh, as a practitioner, we need this array of skillful means to help, kind of like uh, a very well-stocked medicine chest, that we have medicine, all kinds of different medicines, homeopathic, herbal, Western medicine. We have the whole array and we kind of know how they work with our own particular physiology and psychology. So we just have a way of having learned from our success and our mistakes over the years. And one of the most potent and necessary kinds of medicine, spiritual medicines we need in our medicine chest is joy. But it's a little dangerous, like a lot of our medicines are, you know, because it's easy to misunderstand joy. I mean, you can just notice, even though I'm kind of introducing it in a cautionary way, understanding how joy is both a means to awakening and a fruit of awakening. You can just notice how, what the effect is. Oh, I talk about joy. Um, or you might immediately feel, I don't really have any joy in my life. <laughs> we have baggage around joy. And then the interesting thing is, when it does arise, uh, we can kind of uh, lose it a little bit, sort of misuse it as a spiritual medicine. I remember, this is sort of a silly, funny story, but, and I don't know, I still don't know what happened because I was on retreat and I couldn't ask questions, but it was in the middle of a three-month retreat at IMS. Kamala might have even been teaching that retreat. Uh, I did a number of of those three-month retreats when Kamala was one of the three-month teachers. And uh, and then just like at six o'clock at night, after dinner was over, there appeared this, and I was doing eight precepts, so I wasn't eating anything in the evening, but you know, I'd have a little juice, and every once in a while, well, there'd be hard candy sometimes, and then every once in a while, there'd be dark chocolate. And then one night in the middle of the retreat, and I'm not kidding, the bowl was about this big, and it was just like big chunks of dark chocolate. And it was rounded. I mean, this is a big bowl. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, can this be real? <laughs> it's like, what were they thinking? I was like. <laughs> and it's just so, it's just like a really good example of how the mind, you know, there's some initial joy, like sense treat. You know, and I, I wasn't craving it, but there it is for the asking. And, and uh, yeah, it was just sort of interesting to watch the mind, like how many times you'd do a lap through the dining hall <laughs> to see if there's still more there. And, and, and just to, yeah, watch the somersaults, backflips, the mind does, like what it does with joy. And it's interesting, some of you know, have been studying the divine abodes of loving kindness and compassion and appreciative joy and equanimity, and you know that each of them have a near enemy. 
something that looks like these beautiful qualities of the mind, but isn't. So what do you think the near enemy, some of you know, but what's, what do you suppose the near enemy of appreciative joy is? Or maybe just generally joy? Exuberance, like getting identified with the joy. So we're not even um, in the experience of joy, but we're kind of tripping over it and making a self-story, getting lost in the self-story. And then once we're in that bubble, I'm so happy there's this big bowl of chocolate. They love me. They, you know, they love us. The retreat, you know, how nice of them, how fun this will be. It's a festival, you know, but it doesn't really change anything. You know, there's just some, you know, smoothness and sweetness and pretty soon the stomach doesn't feel so good. And, you know, it really isn't that much, but within the bubble, it seems like a big deal. And then once the mind has constructed that bubble, then we're afraid to realize that it's just a bubble. So we have a lot of incentive to keep the bubble going, keep the mental proliferation going. And then it's not joy anymore, right? It's suffering. So even though I'm going to give a talk on joy, we want to hear it and uh, understand it in really organic and simple ways. That the joy that is actually available, the joy that we actually need in our medicine chest to keep the mind in balance, to keep the heart happy, really nothing, nothing really unfolds without a certain degree of happiness in the mind, in the heart. So we need joy, we need happiness to do the practice. But it has to be um, a stable or a, a wholesome, let's say, kind of happiness. Here's a quirky little poem by one of my favorite poets. Hopefully many of you know her. She's a Palestinian-American, Naomi Shihab Nye. And maybe this is one you haven't heard before. It's, it's a little bit, I think, more obscure. It's called Valentine for Ernst Mann. That's the name of the poem. You can't order a poem like you order a taco. Walk up to the counter and say, I'll take two and expect to be handed and expect it to be handed back to you on a shiny plate. Still, I like your spirit. Anyone who says, here's my address, write me a poem, deserves something in reply. So I'll tell you a secret instead. Poems hide in the bottom of her shoes. They are sleeping. They are the shadows drifting across our ceiling the moment before we wake up. What we have to do is live in a way that lets us find them. Once I knew a man who gave his wife two skunks for a valentine. He couldn't understand why she was crying. <laughs> I thought they had such beautiful eyes. He, and he was serious. He was a serious man who lived in a serious way. Nothing was ugly just because the world said so. He really liked those skunks. So he reinvented them as valentines and they became beautiful, at least to him. And the poems that had been hiding in the eyes of the skunks for centuries crawled out and curled up at his feet. Maybe if we reinvent whatever our lives give us, we find poems. Check your garage, the odd sock in your drawer, the person you almost like, but not quite, 
and let me know. Isn't that sweet? <laughs> so, in order to access the spiritual medicine of joy, you know, we, it's much more, it's, you, you can probably guess, it's, it's not about trying. There's nothing that ruins joy than like, I really need it. You know, it's like, isn't that the worst? Where you and a friend say, you know, we need, a, we need a funny movie. I don't care how stupid it is, we need a funny movie. But the more we're desperate to be entertained, the less it works. But when you just sort of stumble on something that's fun, a walk, a movie, or whatever, it can be quite healing. But the desperation kind of can get in the way. So there's a real art to accessing joy in life. But I think the beginning point is to realize that it's okay to aspire to be happy. It's okay to see relative happiness, little moments of joy, as a necessary part of the path. It doesn't have to be complete and unconditioned, not stainable happiness, or I don't care about it. You know, it's like these small things. It's surprising um, how potent little moments of joy are because we have to realize that it puts a dent into self-view. Like when when we're moving through life and grumbling, and not even that we're aware that we're grumbling or we're, we have a bad mood or tight in some way. And we let some simple joy, something beautiful touch our heart. You see, it really challenges that wrong view, that self-view, that, that oh, poor me view. right? When we just let something simple in, whatever it might be. Like there are chocolate chips in the popcorn. How novel! I've never had never seen that before. <laughs> and then it had a name. What did the what was the sign? Or, um, anybody remember the artisanal artisanal popcorn? <laughs> Not, <laughs> that was like delight. I didn't even have any because there were brownies left. But <laughs> <laughs> but I was it was sort of delightful to see that sitting there, <laughs> and I didn't even have to eat it. <laughs> There's a funny story from the discourses. Um, there was a monk at the time of the Buddha. His name was Badia. And um, he evidently was uh, like the head of a kingdom, but he ordained as a monk, so he, of course he gave up everything. And then one day, this is, there's always sort of, in these kind of stories, young monks who don't know much, the way it would usually work is the monks would gather early in the morning. As soon as you could see the lines on your palm, the nuns and the monks would gather, and then they'd walk to the nearest town and they'd be offered food for the day. And they'd walk back to their sort of camp area or wherever they're staying. They'd often eat together, maybe even talk a little dharma uh, about the practice. But then they'd go to their particular campsites under a tree, and they might be a couple hundred yards away, just enough to be secluded, but not that far away from each other. So anyway, they, they overheard this monk who used to be like a king or really wealthy in his former life as a layperson, And they heard him saying to himself, because he was just out by himself, oh, what bliss, oh, what bliss. And these, these monks thought, oh my gosh, you know, 
he's lamenting his choice to become a renunciate and he probably is fantasizing about you know, being back at the palace or whatever and we better go tell the Buddha. So they did. And the Buddha said, you know, please tell this venerable one to come see me. I'd like to talk. And so uh, they, they tracked down this monk and said, the teacher calls you friend, but he... Uh, and they, of course, being a obedient monk, he came to his teacher, the Buddha. And uh, the Buddha said to him, is it true, Bhatia, that on going into the wilderness, to the root of a tree, to an empty dwelling, you repeatedly exclaim, what bliss, what bliss? And he said, yes, venerable sir. What compelling reason do you have in mind that when going to the wilderness, to the root of a tree, to an empty dwelling, you repeatedly exclaim, What bliss, what bliss. And he answered, Before, when I was a householder, maintaining the bliss of kingship, I had guards posted within and without the royal apartments, within and without the city, within and without the countryside. But even though I was thus guarded, thus protected, I dwelled in fear, agitated, distrustful, afraid. But now, I'm going alone to the wilderness, to the root of a tree or an empty dwelling, I dwell without fear, unagitated, confident, and unafraid, unconcerned, unruffled, my wants satisfied, with my mind like a wild deer. This is the compelling reason I have in mind that when going to the wilderness, I repeatedly exclaim, what bliss, what bliss. Then on realizing the significance of that, the Blessed One on that occasion exclaimed, so often the Buddha would, do a little verse, he says, from whose heart there is no provocation and for whom becoming and non-becoming are overcome. This one, beyond fear, blissful, with no grief, is one the devas can't see. So even the celestial beings can't see. And the idea here, we've talked about this, a couple of people left notes, like, what do you mean when you say things are nature, not self? Right. So when someone's practicing practicing, like this monk is, not lost in self-view, wrong view, but just this activity of mind and body without any greed, anger, and delusion. It's like nature. The ego doesn't stand out. The wrong view, the self-view doesn't stand out. So you might see a person, you might see a body, you might see a, a monk in the woods practicing, but you wouldn't find the greed, anger, and delusion that sort of is normally what we mean when we say him or you or me or her. So the Buddha, um, you know, his answer is, yes, it's, it's okay to aspire to be happy and he didn't often talk about what Nibbana, what freedom is, because we probably, we would, we might still get attached. But taking the risk, I'll just read the synonyms. The, he gave 33, I won't read all of them, but there are many that sound quite appealing, even you know, from our mundane points of view. He referred to Nibbana, the culmination of the practice as utter peace, the wonderful, the pure, the safe refuge, the joyful, the peaceful, the deathless, the sublime, 
the auspicious, the secure, the wonderful, the amazing, the unailing, the unafflicted, freedom, the island, the shelter, the refuge. And this is important because as we dig in, it's not that hard for us to somehow mistakenly think that we're practicing to avoid things getting worse. You know, it's already bad being a human being, but I could make it even worse. So I'm going to practice to modify the suffering, right? Doesn't it seem that way? And even like sometimes when we're sitting and there's a lot of pain in the body and that we get to this place where if we're mindful enough, it's tolerable. But if we start to struggle with the unpleasant sensations, it becomes unworkable very quickly. Have you noticed those times in practice? But if we could just sort of stay, the mind stay even and non-reactive, we can handle it. We can make it to the end. And so when we have, and it's good, it's good to learn that skill of not adding layers, unnecessary layers of dukkha, of mental resistance to the ordinary knee pain that can arise in the middle of a sit for the last you know, 20 minutes of the sit or something. But we don't want to conclude that that's the gist of the practice, like not making it worse. You know, can you imagine if Cloud Mountain advertised the next retreat with Kamala, like come to retreat with Kamala Masters and learn how not to make your life worse. <laughs> it would be, you know, it might, it might interest us, but <laughs> it's not a compelling argument to come. So it's good to, it's good to realize that um, our teachers, the lineage, and even our own experience points the mind, creates an intuition about uh, freedom, a taste of freedom, a scent of freedom, a sense of release of a squeeze in the heart. It's, it's interesting um, that sometimes we don't even realize how much the heart is holding until we have a moment of simple peace or calm in practice. A little bit of samadhi. I'm not even talking about deep insight. But even samadhi has the flavor of that release, right? Because although it's temporary, greed, anger, and delusion has faded into the background. And so the mind begins to sense the heart, the mind, without the presence of greed, anger, and delusion. And the mind is a generalizing mind. It's sort of, oh, could it always be this way? It begins little by little, right? A gradual development, gradually developing some confidence that would it be possible for the heart to remain free of greed, anger, and delusion? Now, we usually get attached at that point. Yeah, that would be great. And there it is again. You know, there's the crunch, the squeeze in the heart. When we start thinking about me without greed, anger, and delusion. And like how effective I'll be in the world. Wait till I 